Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, which is basically a classic wrestling show. We focus on 1970s, 80s, and 90s wrestling for the most part. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. Uh, a lot of cool stuff, including uh, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of X's first album, Los Angeles. We don't always stick to wrestling, but usually we do. We had a funny picture of Eddie Gilbert when he was 15 years old looking for pen pals in the aftermath. So if you're inclined, just join the Facebook group. And with that said, um, I want to bring on part two of our three-part series, uh, giving out awards. For the year of 1983, joining us is Steve Ginarelli and the king of Baltimore, John Fell. Let's get rolling with it. Now to kind of a sad award, most washed up wrestler. Uh, John Fell, I know you're going to take Grand Wizard. Going <laughs> <laughs> <Dead laughs> it. <laughs> yes, the Grand Wizard. I'll count him as everything, but no, I'm going to have to go with what they picked in the Observer with Chief J. Strongbow. It was probably washed up in the 70s, but, you know, they had him as their most popular baby face at some points. But, yeah, I'm going to go with Chief J. All right. Steve, who are you going with? Again, I have to beat up on poor Billy Graham. I mean, he just was was oh, was really just long, long in the tooth by this point. And I, I know you, you mentioned, uh, you know, what he did on TBS like a year later or a couple years later. I mean, getting back on the juice and kind of like reclaiming some of his youth youthfulness, uh, at least I could see why they were pushing him then. But here in 83, where his body is just so painfully thin and uh, the, the mu- muscles were really gone and his, he just looks so gaunt, uh, that Billy has to get my vote. I, okay, I went with Chief J. Strongbow. In 1982, him coming back to the WWF, I mean, he looked old, but there was still a a fun, nostalgic aspect to it. It's kind of like, I know not everyone listening is a baseball fan, but this year, Andrew McCutcheon is back with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and it's a, a nice nostalgia trip, but by 1983... I mean, Chief J. Strongbow, the, the fun and the nostalgia were gone. He was just this fat old man. And it would be like, you know, Andrew McCutcheon, you know, gets reduced to a pinch hitter role. And he can't even do that anymore. Like, that's where Strongbow was. It wasn't fun. It was a sad sight. I was a big Chief J. Strongbow fan in 1976. And I was happy to have him back in 82. But 83, man, he was just a sad sight. The, the definition of washed up. What made him um, one of your favorites in the the seventies, John? Um, I mean, he was hot back then. It, well, you know. what happened was he was not in the WWF, and my favorite wrestler, his name has come up on this podcast, uh, Billy White Wolf, and Billy White Wolf was getting double teamed by the Executioners, and this crazy guy, Chief J. Strongbow, runs out of the dressing room and starts beating up the Executioners. I'd never seen anything like that before. And it was the moment that I became a hardcore wrestling fan. So if not, I've said this on the show before, if not for Chief J. Strongbow, this podcast might not exist. 
Well, well, to add to, to John's point, I think, you know, in the 70s, things were kind of different in the way they filmed the TV. I mean, it was it was not as like a great, uh, you know, state-of-the-art product like they were getting closer to in 83. Uh, in the 70s, it was a lot more staticky. And But when you saw Jay Strongbow or Billy Whitewolf run to the ring with their headdresses on, it just the way the cameras hit the lights and the, the colors and, the, and, and, you know, Strongbow was younger and he had more of a vitality and the, the people just loved them i mean it, and it was wrestling was different then too people really were into the ethnicities and uh you had lots of uh, older fans uh and the kids that uh, liked uh, these colorful characters so uh, i could see why uh, mr mcadam would get to hooked on the uh jay strongbow you know it, it's funny i i forgive me if i mentioned this before when chief jay strongbow died i was driving home and they were talking about it on the radio now uh, not that I've heard everything that's ever been on the radio, but when Andre the Giant died, I don't remember anyone talking about it. The, the general public, Randy Savage, I don't remember anyone talking about it. Roddy Piper, but Chief J. Strongbow on the local station, they were talking about it. That's how over he was in the Northeast. Ah, worst feud of the year. There are multiple candidates, in my opinion, but John, what was the worst feud of 1983, in your opinion? Um... I don't know. Can I pass on this one and maybe come back to that? Yeah, one? sure. Okay. Steve, how about you? Worst feud, uh, just from a WWF perspective, uh, I think that there was a feud with, uh, uh, it was, it was uh, Fuji and uh, Tiger Chung Lee. Uh, I think feuding maybe with the invaders, it was just like a, a, a series of matches that would just not end. It wasn't like seeing the hearts against the bulldogs. It was just kind of a mid-level match that kept going on forever and people were just tired of it. You know, Mr. Fuji deserves a mention for most washed up wrestler. <laughs> I, I didn't even think of him, but he's, he's right up there. I mean, worst feud, there were several contenders. Tommy Rich against Buzz Sawyer, for whatever reason, is remembered fondly. In my opinion, it should not be. By 1983, I never wanted to see these two in the same ring again. Dusty Rhodes versus Ron Bass was kind of a personification of everything that was wrong with Florida. How many times was Dusty Rhodes' best friend going to turn on him? I mean, you know, at some point, you've done everything you can do with Dusty. The feud made no sense. Uh, Ron Bass was good, but I don't think he was good enough to be the top heel in a top promotion. But ultimately, I think I've already given this one away. Ole Anderson versus Paul Ellering. That thing was never going to draw money. It was never going to draw interest. Yet they poured fuel on the fire every week between these two, bickering on TV and whatever. And it was it just made for awful television. 1983 Georgia was not very good. Uh, John, you got something you want to throw in? Yeah, I was going to say, um, I was just thinking Dusty against, uh, you know, Kevin Sullivan. That, that's another bad feud. Yeah, just something that just went on too long. And like I said, he came up with the the Midnight Rider and then it just, yeah, the whole Kevin Sullivan thing. So, yeah, Dusty and against Sullivan. And then Kevin Sullivan loses a loser leave town match. And then Christmas, the, the show Christmas 1983, they ha have kind of a, this is your life segment with Dusty Rhodes. And they surprise him by having his sister come out 
And, you know, oh, my little sister from Colorado and Kevin Sullivan throws ink in her eyes. And this this is after the feud has been going on for a year and not doing particularly well. Uh, Rhodes and Sullivan is a good pick. Wow. I didn't even know about that. Worst television announcer. John, who do you think was the worst TV announcer in 1983? Um, I'm going to go with um, Gorilla. Gorilla is a good one. And you know what? Even sometimes I'm back and forth on Vince in the early 80s because some of the Cosell type stuff that he would do or the, like the way he would pronounce things like Cosell wasn't too bad. But either I'm going to go with either Gorilla or, or Vince. It was so funny in the late 70s, early 80s. Vince tried so hard to be Howard Cosell. Steve, who do you have? <laughs> I think I think, uh, and this is almost uh, sad to say, but uh, Gordon Soley just seemed to fall off the map from his uh, glory days uh, back in the seventies, where he was, you know, maybe the premier wrestling announcer. It just seemed like he was just going on fumes at this point. Going on fumes is a good way to put it. Here's the story I heard: okay, that Gordon had a bad hip. And during the Morocco uh, Piper, when Piper turned by defending Gordon Soley, Gordon legitimately got knocked down, and it really messed up his hip, and he had to have surgery on it. And again, this is just what I've heard, that Gordon, uh, you know, I mean, a hip surgery, that's that's painful, right? And Mm -hmm. Gordon was using a lot of painkillers, and he was mixing them with alcohol. And that is kind of led to his demise in 83. I mean, I went with Gordon Soley. Like, I don't even know who comes in second place. That's how bad Gordon Soley was in 83. Again, acknowledging the fact that before 83, he was great. Um, I, I would be dumbfounded. I'd be like, you know, what happened to this guy? It was that obvious. You know, again, you shared that copy of The Observer and let me point this out too. The Observer Awards in 1983, it's like 100 people voting. So it's not exactly the most scientific thing out there, even though that you had some very knowledgeable people voting. But 35 people voted for Gordon Soley as best announcer. He won best announcer. And Dave was like, I'd like to know who the 35 people were who voted for Gordon Soley. I mean, it was that bad. So again, Gordon's overall body of work is fantastic. He's a, a no brainer hall of famer, but by, by the time 1983 rolled around, I mean, Gordon was barely paying attention both in Georgia and Florida. He wasn't, you know, he was there for Starcade 83. Yes. And with Bob Cottle and wasn't very good at Starcade 83. So, you know, when you when you bring Bob Cottle down a little bit, you're definitely not doing, you know, the announcing uh, part of the, the job any, you know, server. I'm, I'm glad you said that because a lot of people might say, well, it's not Gordon's fault that they, they didn't have him prepared. You know, he'd be like, and going to the ring, the road warriors against, uh... Side headlock by the road war. You know, like that. Okay, so they didn't have, give him a format. Well, first of all, you're the TV announcer. You say, hey, get me a format, number one. But number two, like John mentioned, I mean, no excuses at Starcade 83, and he still wasn't good. Yeah, he wasn't. It didn't seem prepared at all. No. He, he seemed like a guy who did not care at all. Steve, did you want to throw something in there? 
Well, just that he redeemed himself when uh, he teamed with Joe Pettacino for Pro Wrestling This Week in 1986-87. I really love that show with clips from every territory. I really enjoyed that. I love the concept of that show. When they brought Gordon back in 1989, you know, everyone kind of went, oh, Gordon solely. But he, he didn't do anywhere near as bad a job then. So, again... I'm willing to just say, okay, Gordon was having some health issues, and that's what brought the quality of his work down. Best television announcer, uh, John Fell, who do you have? Bob Cottle. I just, you know, just following what he was doing with the – and a lot, of, a lot of it has to do with the Mid-Atlantic uh, podcast. It's just seeing what Bob did, you know, especially leading up to the Cronoodle, uh slaughter young bud uh, steamboat matches but yeah bob coddle i have a soft spot for him now he's he's really become one of my favorites bob coddle is always good getting way off track here every promotion makes mistakes and in my opinion the biggest mistake smoky mountain wrestling ever made was when they got rid of bob coddle in in favor of bringing in jim ross and i was saying at the time you know you guys are gambling you're you know get, giving up on an outstanding announcer who was there for you every week. And you're going with Jim Ross who might be gone tomorrow. And then Jim Ross was a huge name. And in my opinion, he was a better overall announcer than, than Bob Cottle, but not by much. And lo and behold, Jim, Jim Ross, you know, the first, first thing that's moving, he gets on it and goes back to WCW, oh, excuse me, leaves for the WWF, and Bob Cottle's not coming back, and now you don't have a competent announcer. So I thought Smoky Mountain gam- gambled and lost a little bit right there. But with that side thing aside, Steve, who did you have for best TV announcer? I, I have to give it to Vince. I mean, um, I think what Vince did really well was just uh, what he would do at the start of the show where he would say, and then from there, and, and, and he would uh, really make the matches. And, and also when he was pumping up the garden or something like that, he, he would really make it seem like you had to be there. You had to buy a ticket. I, I liked what he did in that aspect, calling the matches, maybe not so much, but uh his presence, uh, he definitely made it seem uh, more important than it, than it would have been without him there. I can see that. And there is a huge difference between 1983 Vince McMahon and 1985 Vince McMahon, where you know he's on Saturday night's main event screaming about everything. Uh, <laughs> this was a tough one for me. Jim Ross was really good, even back in 1983 when he was just doing Mid-South Wrestling. But ultimately, I went with Lance Russell. Can't go wrong with Lance. He he's good calling the matches. He but he was really good leading some young developing guys through interviews. I mean, I thought he was every bit as valuable to the Memphis promotion as Jerry Lawler, and that's a big statement. And Lance just you know had was he any better in eighty three than he was eighty two eighty four? No, he wasn't. He was just you know steady and excellent. Lance Lance Russell. So I'm going with him. Rookie of the Year, 1983. John, who do you have? Um, I am going to go with Angelo Mosca Jr. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He was actually picked. He was actually picked in um, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I was going to defend your pick. <laughs> if you were going with Mosca, I was going to not agree with it, but defend it. Um, I'm going to go with the Road Warriors. You know, I didn't look at them as being rookies or anything, but you know, just coming in the way that they did again like you you had said earlier they 
it's not like they could really wrestle, but man, their presence, the way that they looked and the way they came in and just beat people up. But yeah, you know, they made a huge impact in 83 for guys who were basically just starting out. You know, one tough thing about Rookie of the Year, it's really difficult to figure out, like, who's a rookie and who's not. Like, uh, Road Warrior Animal wrestled a little bit in Mid-Atlantic in 1982, and Road Warrior Hawk... I mean, the best thing that ever came out of the Van- Al Tomko's Vancouver territory, I invite all of you, if I forget to do it, someone remind me, look up Crusher Von Haig in YouTube. It, it, it's Road Warrior Hawk, and you could tell if this guy, this guy had the potential to be a huge star right out of the gate. I mean, he was such a great heel. I invite everyone to check that out. Uh, Steve, who did you have for Rookie of the Year? I think uh, what John just said about Angelo Mosca Jr. <laughs> Angelo Mosca Jr. kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, like in the old TV show, The Incredible Hulk, where uh, Hulk would go from being like uh, Bruce Banner to uh, like five steps later, he'd be the full Hulk. Well, uh, Angelo Mosca Jr. was like maybe stage four before he became the full Hulk. You know, he had this big bushy eyebrows and he had this kind of <laughs> s- snarling look on his face. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's a really funny interview on uh, YouTube that you can look up where he's being interviewed by um, actually uh, Johnny Weaver. And you know he's just all over the place, and he says that he's talking about the assassin, and he's saying like, "You don't want to get out there with Jody, I mean, assassin." And the look on uh, the look on uh, Johnny Weaver's face, you know, I mean, it just looks like he's ready to like quit his job right then <laughs> and there. But uh, but just to just to be a little different than John, I, I guess I'll give my rookie of the year to Billy Jack Haynes because. Uh, he he was kind of like a I guess a singles version of uh, the Road Warriors, just a guy with a magnificent look, and uh, you know Vince would want him uh, in '84, and even made the cover of the magazine uh, like a you know a year later, uh, you know, and that aborted a WWF run that really never happened. And, uh, you know, Billy Jack, you know, if he had his head straightened on, kind of like if Kerry Von Erich had, uh, uh, he would have had a much, much bigger career, but it just wasn't meant to be. No, and you know what? I mean, Billy Jack Haynes, when he was in Florida in 1984, I mean, he it had the feel of, wow, this guy has the potential to be a megastar. Here's me defending Angelo Mosca Jr. Are you guys ready? I'm ready for it. Sure. And the first time Eric Clapton picked up a guitar, he sucked. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. In 1983, Bill, Angelo Mosca Jr. should have been working prelims in Portland under an assumed name, getting his feet wet in the business. Instead, they bring him in right away. He gets a big push in Florida in 1983, and then they bring him up to the Carolinas and continue this big push. He didn't have a chance to learn. You know, Eric Clapton never had a chance to learn how to play the guitar, and he's out there, you know, in front of everybody three months into it. You're going to be like, oh, my God, this guy's terrible. And that's that's my defense of Angelo Mosca Jr., that it was just too much too soon, that he had barely been trained before he was in front of a big audience getting pushed so that's my me defending him um, but my rookie of the year it's got to be the road warriors i mean they had such an impact on the wrestling business and by the time you know in 1986 1987 you know larry sharp was training wrestlers at the monster factory and he said everyone 
who walked through the door either wanted to be Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, or one of the Road Warriors. So tremendous impact. And I remember when they first came out, just being wowed by the guys. I am going with the Road Warriors. Can I say something real quick? Go right ahead. You know what's interesting is that we've we've talked a little bit about how bad the Georgia territory was in 1983 and how things were really going downhill to think that that was one of the that that they came out of georgia you know that was the one thing that Oli did that he came upon in 1983 that just changed the entire face of professional wrestling you're right and it all happened by accident because he was grooming matt bourne and arn anderson to become the national tag team champions and matt bourne had some legal issues and had to go home and, you know, Ole didn't know what to do. And he called Eddie Sharkey and he said, you know, do you have anyone for me? And Rick Rude was almost one of the road warriors. But they went with uh, Laurinaitis and Hegstrand and the the rest is history. Let's go to most underrated wrestler. Now, I interpret this as the what? why isn't this guy getting a bigger push award? John, who did you have most underrated wrestler in 1983? I'm going to go with, um, I guess maybe, um, even though he was a rookie and just starting out was Arn. I mean, if, uh, Ole was going to go ahead and start pushing, you know, Arn and, you know, as a tag champion, he should have done something more with them after the issues happened that they couldn't, you know, put the belts on them. So I'm going to go with Arn as like an underrated, especially you got to figure within two years, He's teaming with Ole as the national tag champions in the NWA and would go on to be, you know, one of the most respected wrestlers of all time. Or, you know, everybody looks at him as being uh, as great, you know, great. All right. I can see that one. Steve, how about you? I'm going to go with Mr. Saito from the AWA. I know when Saito had been in the WWF in um, 82 and maybe even in early 83, uh, he, he wrestled Backlund on TV in a scientific match and, I was just so impressed with this guy, Saito, just a great wrestler. And he even had some good matches with Zabisco in the AWA and and it's dying days around the late eighties. But just a really good wrestler, uh, just very believable. And uh, he's somebody that you could watch and just believe he was actually wrestling. And he was as as thick as a tank as well. I liked, I liked Mr. Saito. My guy is someone we, praised effusively when we did our WWF 1982 wrap-up, and that's Playboy Buddy Rose. Playboy Buddy Rose got over like crazy in the WWF, one of the best in-ring performers in the business, probably the best bumper in the business, and the WWF run comes to an end, and he just winds up going back to Portland. To this day, that kind of blows my mind. He should have had a big role in a much bigger promotion. I would think if I'm running things at Jim Crockett Promotions and Ric Flair you know, doesn't have the championship, why not bring in dollar store Ric Flair, Playboy Buddy Rose, and have a, a big series between those two? And if not, you know, why not bring him into Florida and give him the push that you wound up giving Ron Bass because Buddy Rose was way better. I, I thought, you know, the, the WWF run was a great showcase for him, and maybe he really did just want to go back to Portland. I don't know. But to me, looking back, that's a, a little bit of a letdown. It's it's a shame that his um, 
he had had a really good run for uh, uh, Roy Shires in San Francisco yeah. back in the late seventies. It's a shame that uh, the NWA people didn't really either see that or they didn't take much stock in it because he w- wasn't in demand. Like you say, he was just somebody that was, on the fringe of everybody. He worked at the garden, obviously, and had a big house with back in the garden, but he just wasn't apparently uh, in much demand with the NWA. Maybe not. And again, maybe he really did just go kind of go back to Portland. I have no idea, but I thought coming off that, that run against Backlund, the whole WWF run, I mean, more, you know, it showcased him. And I think, you know, the wrestling business should have been able to do a lot more with Playboy Buddy Rose in 1983. All right. Now we have most overrated, and this was probably, I have a really long list here, but uh, John, let's start with you. Who's the most overrated, the guy who made you say, okay, why is this guy getting the push that he's getting? For my lack of knowledge for 1983, it's going to be Harley because you see this guy that's got a little bit of gut. He's got the the perm and everything, and he's coming in and beating Ric Flair. But again, that was me not knowing the history of the business or history of Harley. But for me, it was like, how was this guy coming in and beating Flair? It has to be a fluke. And they were talking about him being a great champion and then breaking the, the record of Fez with number of titles. But yeah, it's definitely Harley for me in 83. Not overall now that I know more about the business, but it'd be Harley in 83. For, for me, I, I would have said Harley in, in 1983. You know, knowing what I knew back then or not knowing what I didn't know back then. I, I, you know, again, I was like, you know, why are they making this guy champion again? Couldn't they go, even if they weren't happy with Ric Flair, like couldn't they go with Dick Slater or, or Greg Valentine? But anyway, yeah. I, I do understand now. Now, why he was the guy. Steve, how about you? Most overrated? In the Observer, the actual winner of the contest was Bob Backlund. Uh, he won by a quite a large margin. And I, I guess that was probably the best thing. I, I guess I would go with that. Um, I mean, he was the WWF champion for 11 months plus uh, there. And, um, you know, this fans had, you know, you know, respected him, but had grown tired of his act, and uh, it was really time for him to go, and he would be gone by, uh, I guess, August of 84. You know, the the hatred for Bob Backlund was practically pouring off the pages of The Observer in, like, 83 and 84, and, I mean, I, honestly, I can see why. Most overrated for me, I mean, there were so many candidates. For those of us who saw Southwest Championship Wrestling, Lord Jonathan Boyd came in, and I didn't realize that he was the booker. But my <laughs> God, he made himself just the, the the center of the entire promotion, and Jonathan Boyd just was not that good. Mr. Olympia in Mid-South Wrestling, I like Mr. Olympia. He was a good wrestler, but they tried to they, – they put shoes on his feet that were just too big. He was not – a guy you could put the North American championship on. Now I could see coming in. It's like, okay, if we put a rocket on this guy, will he get over big time? The answer wound up being no, but I can see the mentality of trying it. Ditto Ron Bass. I mean, he just not was not worthy of the push he got in Florida. I can see them saying, okay, let's give this a try. It just didn't work out. Ole Anderson, my God. I mean, you want to talk about keep the promoter slash booker off TV because that person just cannot help themselves as far as 
injecting themselves into too big a role. Oli was semi-retired at this time, but he made, but as a baby face, he made himself the center of attention. He did it again in 1990 when they made him Booker again, just made him the center of the promotion. One guy who would have gotten this award had he gotten more TV time. They had a guy in Southwest Championship Wrestling named Buddy Marino. Most and it's M O R E N O, not like Dan Marino. Buddy Marino, isn't it? Isn't it Omar Atlas? Yes, that that's him. And you know, you, you look at this guy and you're just like, why is he on TV at all? But they gave him kind of a middle of the card push, teaming him with Bobby Jaggers against the Sheep Herders, and it was nuts. I mean, this guy had no role on television whatsoever. But ultimately. And when it comes to, the, to these awards, look, what goes on behind the scenes or in real life doesn't matter, okay? And I didn't know about any of this in 1983. 1983, Southwest Championship Wrestling is on national cable, okay? It's Sunday morning, but it's still national cable. And their biggest star is a guy named Bruiser Bob Sweetan, <laughs> who's got the, the shoe polish hair and the bad perm, and he's fat, and he's not attractive at all, and he's the main baby face. And even in 83, I was like, can this promotion not do better? So <laughs> even with all the candidates I listed, I mean, it was Bob Sweeten by a mile. Even, like I said, 17-year-old me is like, what's going on here with this guy getting that kind of a push? So You're, you're saying that 17-year-old you didn't like Mr. Piledriver Bob Sweeten? No, I, I <laughs> there should have been an I Hate Tully t-shirt. It should have been an I Hate This Guy t-shirt. <laughs> I, I would love to see a, a fantasy a fantasy booking match between uh, the Jonathan Boyd you described from 1983 against uh, Eric Embry of 1989. Oh. What a dream match that would be! You know that's a really good that's a really good uh, comparison, Steve. Because if you saw what Eric Embry was doing in 1988-1989, Jonathan Boyd topped it. And I'm not oh being God. totally that's, serious. He that's saying something. That's really saying something. Oh, uh, anyway, <laughs> what a shock. I, I wasn't exactly devastated any time. I, I missed an episode of Southwest Championship Wrestling in 1983. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Best flying wrestler. John Fell, who are you going with? Again, because of my lack of knowledge, you know, heading into 83 and looking at it, kind of trying to do 83 eyes would be Jimmy Snuka. Because, you know, I hadn't seen Tiger Mask. I hadn't seen, you know, the Dynamite Kid. And living, you know, up this way, I've got mostly WWF. So the guy who flew around for me was Jimmy Snuka. I can definitely see Jimmy Snuka. Steve, how about you? I would go with Tiger Mask. I didn't see a lot of him. But uh, what he did was extremely impressive. And considering how small he was, I mean, that was really impressive at, at its time because you used to seeing just the monsters in the WWF, not these smaller wrestlers. I can see Tiger Mask. Tiger Mask is on my honorable mention list. He would have absolutely been number one. The problem was he just wrestled a couple of matches in 1983 in the WWF. And I haven't mentioned this yet, but we're, we're really only counting United States and Canada, you know, Mexico, Japan, 
we're, we're kind of leaving those guys out because that's just not really what this podcast is about. So that's why I didn't vote for Tiger Mask. Years later, I saw Dynamite Kid in Portland, and wow, was he impressive in Portland. But again, it was a a short period of time and just not a lot of spotlight in Portland. To me, the best wrestler in 1983, best flying wrestler was Kevin Von Erich. I mean, Kevin oh, wow. was an amazing athlete before the injuries caught up with him. Uh, I mean, he, he would just wow me when I was watching world-class championship wrestling. And he wowed me again in 1981 when he was in Georgia. That's a great choice for, for Kevin. Yeah, Kevin was, was really good when he was in his prime. All right, 1983, most charismatic wrestler. John Fell, who do you have? The nature boy, Ric Flair. You know, he just, uh, it just when he was on TV, you just had to watch him. You know, even as, as charismatic as I always felt Hogan was and Dusty was, Flair is top-notch for me. All right, Steve, who do you have? I'm going to go with Piper. I, um, I I don't know if you've ever seen it, John, but the uh, uh, the A and E did this uh, biography of Piper a couple of years ago that was just outstanding and really in depth and covered his whole life and and they showed Flair in the in the clips and they show Hogan in the clips, but Piper really stands out. I mean, he he really just when the camera's on him, it's people are just drawn to him and uh, he gets my vote. I can see Piper, you know. I, I, I'm not going to change my vote last minute, but John, you, you voted for Ric Flair and I'm sitting here telling everyone that Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler before I even saw him on television. Yet somehow I went with someone else, <laughs> but really Hulk Hogan deserves a mention. Uh, Ric Flair, maybe I should have made him number one. Kerry Von Erich absolutely deserves a mention, but 1983, I went with Michael Hayes. And again, wow. I, I praised him earlier. Um, I, I don't think the whole Von Erich versus Freebirds thing would have worked out anywhere near it did if, if Michael Hayes wasn't part of that dynamic. So, I mean, Michael Hayes, you know, I remember when watching him in Georgia and I mean, he was like no one I'd ever seen before. He really jumped out of the television for me. I, I'm great baby face, great heel until he started phoning it in in like 1989. But Michael Hayes was great in 1983. Feud of the year. Uh, I think I've already given away what my pick might have been. But well, John Fell, what's your feud of the year from 1983? I'm going to say Freebirds and the Von Erics, just because it just set that place on fire and it really set the uh, Freebirds off as just being this incredible you know, breaking the mold of the, the three-man tag team and, and whatnot. But you couldn't go wrong with them. But my honorable mention would be um, Snuka and Morocco. I mean, Snuka and Morocco, in my opinion, is the is the only feud in 1983 that you could even argue against the Von Erickson Freebirds. But if you can argue it, that means it was an incredible feud. Yep, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with Freebirds and the Von Erickson. All right, Steve, how, what do you have? Just from, you know, uh, from what I saw live, uh, I didn't have access to the Von Erichs Freebirds live, but uh, Morocco Snooker was the biggest thing at the time for me to be able to see. But historically, now looking back on it all, uh, Von Erichs versus Freebirds because of its historical impact, that would get my vote as the most important feud of the year. I went with, now, honorable mention, Steamboat and Youngblood against Jack and Jerry Briscoe. That was a great feud. 
Uh, also, Steamboat and Youngblood against Sergeant Slaughter and Don Kernodal. A great feud started in 1982, but worth mentioning in 1983. Here's a feud that no, very few people are going to pick, but I stick with this one. Sunshine and Chris Adams against Precious and Jimmy Garvin. Every promotion on earth tried to replicate that. It was such a great and original idea. Again, I think a lot of people off the top of their heads might not say that feud, but if you really think about it, that was an outstanding feud. Yeah, it went into the middle of 1984, but it, it started in 1983. Morocco and Snuka, obviously, you know, I'm lucky enough to have seen that live. I'm lucky enough to have seen Jimmy Snuka jump off the top of the cage on top of Morocco. I mean, just really memorable stuff would probably be feud of the year most other years. But again, Von Erich's Freebirds by a mile. I mean, that might be the best feud of all time, to be honest with you. If you think about it, I mean, it had that territory on fire for the entire year of 1983. Again, Christmas night, they had to turn turn away 8,000 people uh, from Reunion Arena. You know, one of the one of the best, yeah, that one just for the significance. But I know a lot of people talk about like uh, Dusty Nikita and the Road Warriors against the Four Horsemen, and I don't think even think they were that hot. No. I mean, I know that Hogan and Orndorff in '86 was pretty big. But when it comes to just setting an entire territory on fire, it's the Freebirds and the Von Erichs. Yeah, when you're talking about going from point A to point B, Christmas night, they, uh, 1982, they're going nuts because they had their – I think it was – was it before that? Well, anyway, World Class would go – probably had like $300,000 houses in their whole history before the Freebirds turned heel. And they were a regular thing in 1983. So you got to give them credit. And yeah. not even knowing that, I mean – World-class championship wrestling aired in Boston. I watched it every week, and it was great television. I mean, you know, so because of that feud. Okay, let's go with worst match of the year. John, what are you you going with? I'm going to go with the last battle of Atlanta. Worst? Wow. Yeah, because finally getting to see that. Now, understanding that it's basically just a house show cage match, it's kind of neat. It's got the roof and everything. But they really, they had probably had how many cage matches up to that point and everything. But watching it now, it's like, oh my gosh. It was just basically Tommy Rich laying around bleeding and Buzz Sawyer beating him up a little bit. And then <laughs> a very, you know, anticlimactic finish. And then, then you've got to add in your favorite feud of the year with Ole and Paul Ellering. They came in at the end and did a little bit of something. So I'm going to go up with that. All right. You know, it's all about expectations, right? I remember when WWE Network dropped that match however many years ago. And I I wasn't dreading it, but I was like, you know, this isn't going to be any good. And I came away thinking it was better than I thought it was going to be. I, I thought it was a good match far from a great match some people were like oh that was a great match i'm like no it really wasn't but i I was expecting uh, a a disaster and i didn't think it was a disaster but again it's all about expectations uh steve what are you going with worst match of 1983 
I seem to recall they had a match at the Garden, and they may have even done this around the horn in the WWF. It was your your favorite match, uh, Bob Backlund against George Steele. And I think the, <laughs> the way they did it was, uh, you know, uh, George was going to get him up for the uh, the hammer lock, and uh, Backlund flips over him, and he 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 rolls him up or something. But it, it's a really super fast match, like maybe ninety seconds or you know, two minutes tops and they did that at the garden and they did, you know, a couple of other places as well. And to me, that's just a complete waste of time. I mean, you know, don't cheat the people out of a main event. Uh, I know in your case, you're probably grateful it was so short, but uh, you know, it's kind of similar to the Andre against ultimate warrior matches or anabolic warrior matches years later, keep it short, keep it simple and move on to something else. You know, I, I never had, especially the fact that they only did it once. In Madison Square Garden, they had a Bob Backlund versus George Steele match, and then in some kind of a DQ schmoz, and they had the rematch, and Backlund won in, like, I want to say 75 seconds or something like that. Right. I never had a problem with that because if wrestling is a sport, something like that can happen. You can have the Mike Tyson 30-second sure. knockout. Sure. So, and, and they only did it once, so I didn't have a big problem with it. My worst match of the year was the first Bob Backlund versus George the Animal Steel match of 1983. And I did get to see it on TV. I mean, years ago, we talked about this a little bit on Stick to Wrestling. I watched that show from July 1983. And for some reason, they had an Andre the Giant versus Big John Stud cage match from Landover inserted into the uh, Madison Square Garden Network presentation. The Andre versus Stud match was way better than Bob Backlund versus George the Animal Steel. <laughs> Think about that. Andre and Stud was way better than Backlund and Steel. So that, and it's not like Andre and Stud surprised me with, oh gosh, they did really well tonight. It was that Steel and Backlund was that bad. It was one of the worst matches, one of the worst major matches in a major arena I've ever seen. <laughs> worse, you know what? Worse than Andre versus Anabolic Warrior. It was that bad. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. Pro Wrestling Match of the Year. Now, I've got two. I've got the, the, the PWI version, which is usually the big title change, and like the, the ultimate five-star match. Uh, John, what do you have for Pro Wrestling Match of the Year? I, for me, it's uh, the dog collar match between Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine at Starcade 83. That's a good pick. Just Piper coming back. That match has so much drama in it. And, you know, what you guys were saying about Piper's charisma, Valentine was so hated. You know, it was one of those things where the, the heel just dis- almost destroys the baby face. But then Piper wraps him up for the win. Yeah, it, to me, that match just stands out. It, it's To me, it's much better than the main event that night. Yeah, the main event, uh, Ric Flair versus Harley Race, it's a good match. It's a little bit overrated, and Gene Kaniski was just in the way. Uh, Steve, how about you? Best match of 1983? I'm going to go with that match that I talked about earlier in the show, the uh, Bruiser Brody in St. Louis against Ric Flair. Uh, it seems like two guys that are you know, way ahead of the curve, uh, you know, really state-of-the-art wrestling and uh, working not only a long match, but a quality match. It's not just rest holds. There's a lot of action in the match. So that would be the one that stood out to me. 
All right. For me, Pro Wrestling Illustrated Match of the Year, if I'm going with their their criteria, clearly it's Bob Backlund versus the Iron Sheik. Usually, Pro Wrestling uh, Illustrated Match of the Year is the biggest match where a title changed hands. And again, they went to press before this match happened. But, you know, clearly Bob Backlund losing the title is match of the year. But the best match of the year, it came down to two of them for me. Harley Race defended the NWA Championship in Florida on TV against Barry Windham, and these two just burned it down. And I could see, I didn't see the match live. I got it on tape years later. But, I mean, if you're watching that match, you're like, okay, Barry Windham is going to be a superstar in this business. It was a really good match. But my number one, they had a match July 4th, 1983 in Fort Worth. So it's not on Peacock with the world-class episodes because it's a Fort, uh, a Fort Worth episode, but the Von Erichs and the Freebirds absolutely tore it down on July 4th, 1983. And the next year they did it again, only it was an even better match, believe it or not. And you have Mike Von Erich in there against David Von Erich. I know that doesn't add up, but that match was even better than the 83 match. But the July 4th, 83 match, I'm not sure if it's on YouTube. If you're listening and you know where it is, please put up a link on the Facebook group. But that was the best match I saw from 1983. And, you know, you were saying about the uh, title changes. The race beating Flair for the title is actually the winner of the match of the year in PWI. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the, the biggest title change that took place before they went to press. Yeah. All right. Uh, worst promotion of the year. My goodness. What's John McAdam going to take? We'll find out after we take, after we hear from John Fell. Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I'm going to say Florida. Again, I'm going to go back to, you know, just the stuff they were doing down there with. It, it was just tired. Uh, you, just nothing going on. And. And Dusty wearing himself thin and no real good competition for him and the Kevin Sullivan stuff. So I'm going to go with Florida. Tired is a really good way to describe 1983 Florida. I mean, I've said it before. They did everything. You know, Dusty did everything humanly possible that he could do with himself in Florida. And it was really time for something new. You know, for a long time, he was Florida's answer to Bruno Sammartino. But by 1983, the sun had gone gone down long ago on that. Steve, how about you? I was going to say like Southwest Championship just because they were floundering and trying to throw all these different ideas up against the wall to see what sticks. But uh, you got to go with Central States. I mean, if you got Bulldog Bob Brown and you got an occasional appearance by Harley Race and you're drawing like 400 people max, uh, that's got to be the worst promotion, I think. And, and you should see, I mean, Steve, obviously you've seen it, but for the audience, I mean, the production of this show was noticeably poor. I mean, it, it, it was dark. They just did not have enough lighting. And it was like no one picked up on that. It's like, hey, the ring's kind of dark. Let's do it again next week, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, Central States, I, I didn't even think of them, but I would certainly have them on the list. Florida was way down in 1983. By their own standards, Mid-South Wrestling had kind of a down year. In my opinion, creatively down, and uh, the crowds were down. Um, so they deserve a mention. It, it comes down to Southwest Championship Wrestling and Georgia Championship Wrestling. And Southwest, the I mean, they had some moments, but I mean, the production was terrible. They, you know, They weren't pushing the right guys. Here they are. 
spending between five and seven thousand dollars a week to be on USA Network and having no stars to build around. You know, Tully Blanchard was a great heel, but he at the time seemed like a small fish in a big pond. Uh, excuse me, a big fish in a small pond. Tully would prove me wrong, but you know, again, Southwest, but but Georgia. I mean, it just always had me scratching my head. Like, what are these people trying to do? You know, Gordon Soley was terrible. They, you know, it, sometimes they got a little too creative and. You know, there's there's a difference between being creative and just being weird and and being out there, and that's what Georgia was. Uh, and again, I've been told, oh, you know, you should just watch it and not r- worry about what the newsletters say. Hey, I wasn't getting newsletters in 1983. The only thing I got were the after magazines, and they would heap praise upon Georgia Championship Wrestling because they were the WWF's competition. And even then, I could tell, like, you know, what is wrong with this promotion? This this is just terrible. I mean, Larry Zabisco buying the National Heavyweight Championship from, from Killer Brooks and taking them almost two months to get it off of him. And the whole thing was crazy. I mean, one example after example on Georgia, I am going with them for, for worst promotion slash worst TV show. Now, let's go with the best promotion of the year. John, well, who do you have? I'm going to go with the WWF only because of what they were able to do and with, you know, that they did get the belt off of Backlund to get it to, you know, Hogan. Um, so that put them in place to start taking over things in 84, at least growing in 84. You had Snooka on top of the world. They were, you know, they hit a home run with him. So I'm just going to go with the WWF because they were putting everything in place to start doing what Vince really wanted to do once Hogan came on board. They, they really were. And it, it wasn't apparent to me at the time, but you're right. They were putting the pieces in place to do what they were going to do starting in the beginning of 1984. Steve, what was your promotion of the year? I think I'll go with uh, World Class just because this was their, their heyday. This was their day in the sun. I mean, the WWF... Uh, to me, this year was more of a year of, of, of a crossroads. You're going from the Backland era into the brand new expansion era the following year. If you want to call this the expansion year, that's fine too. Uh, but, uh, you know, world class from the Freebirds and the Von Erich feud that was outstanding. Uh, Mid Atlantic had lots of uh, high spots too. I mean, they had their first Starcade. They had uh, lots of great moments. One of Ric Flair's most memorable years and the Dog Collar match, of course. But they were, you know, with Steamboat retiring and uh, all the guys defecting to New York uh, by the end of the year, uh, they were just kind of like, they were at a crossroads too. So um, I guess my promotion of the year would be the Dallas promotion. Yeah, for me, it's world class championship wrestling. Um, we we got them here in Boston, uh, and it was great television every week. They would have an occasional squash match, as opposed to WWF, where it was five squash matches every single week. Uh, it was really entertaining. They put main events on TV every week. I was I was taken aback by how good it was. Getting an honorable mention, the WWF had a great 1983. I mean, they, you know, were drawing $100,000 houses routinely. You know, every big city they went to, they were on fire. Mid-Atlantic also deserves a, an honorable mention. They had a big 1983. Towards the end, it felt like, you know, 
October, November, they were doing, well, maybe even, even into September, they were just kind of waiting for Starcade to happen. So that was a, a negative. But I mean, the Piper Valentine feud was great. The race versus flair feud was great. Um, you know, they, they had a good year. It's funny. A lot of promotions either had a good year or a bad year in 1983. Maybe Memphis and Portland were just having another year, but everyone else seemed very either up or down. Okay, moving on to worst on interviews. John Fell, who was the worst interview in 1983? <laughs> uh, the Grand Wizard. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after he died. Those were the worst. <laughs> All that dead air. Yeah. You know what? I don't really have one for this one. Um, I was concentrating so much on the people that were good. So can I, can I skip this one? Of course you can. How about you, Steve? Well, based on what I said earlier, I'm going to give it to Angelo Mosca Jr. <laughs> he, I, I can't, I can't think of anybody else that uh, outed a mass wrestler during his <laughs> interview. So. Uh, he was, he was, I, I defend him, but I acknowledge that he was really bad. Worst on interviews. I'm going to defend the Von Erics. A lot of people go right to the Von Erics. Uh, they always came across to me as just r- regular, genuine guys. They didn't do like, you know, the typical pro wrestler. Hey, I'm going to get you interview. Then they did occasionally, but you know, they, they came across, like I said, as just being, you know, Kevin Von Eric, when he was doing an interview, he was just being Kevin Von Eric. It always came across that way to me. So there we go with me defending the Von Erics. I believe Bob Backlund was the runaway in the observer. And, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna disagree with that. But if I if I could find someone worse than 1983 Bob Backlund, I mean, I, I'm that guy's got to be pretty bad. Jimmy Snook is my number two. Uh, again, you could you can defend him by saying, well, he's just a kind of confused guy from Fiji. You know, doesn't speak really good English. But you know, I mean, nothing he said made made sense. I guess it didn't matter because he was you know he was as over as he was. The worst interview in pro wrestling in 1983, in my opinion, was Paul Ellering. I feel like I've kicked Paul around enough on these two shows, but he absolutely earned it. His interviews were just, you know, for a smart guy who does these incoherent interviews, it never made sense to me. Uh, Best on interviews. John, who do you have? I'm going to go with Michael Hayes, which was, I believe, the winner in The Observer. I mean, the guy was just phenomenal. Him, you know what? I'm going to say 1A and 1B is going to be Hayes and Piper. So I'm going to go with those two as a tie at my number one. Okay. All right. Steve, who are you going with? I'm going to go with Morocco. That was um, that was a big year for him with interviews with Albano. And he was really, uh, you know, over the top with his craziness. And uh, um, yeah, I'll go with Morocco this time. All right. For my runners-up, I mean, Jerry Lawler, Money in the Bank. And one thing I loved about Lawler, he he wasn't a guy who just, you know, fastball, 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 change-up, fastball, fastball. He had multiple speeds. He could, you know, go in many different directions. He could tell a story. He could talk you into the building. Uh, Bobby Heenan, obviously you can't go wrong with Bobby Heenan. Uh, Roddy Piper was always a great interview. And again, uh, I will try to remember to put up that uh, YouTube clip of looking for the Mad Dog. If I don't do it, someone please kindly remind me. Uh, Ric Flair is always a great interview, Money in the Bank. 
One guy who never gets enough credit for being a great interview, when Bruiser Brody was in Georgia in early 1983, his matches, but particularly his interviews, were must-watch TV. Uh, check that out if you get the chance. But ultimately, I went with Michael Hayes, the leader of the fabulous Freebirds, the guy who kept it all together, the guy who could talk you into the building. He, he Michael Hayes was despicable. And Michael Hayes would talk about how the key to being a top heel is to believe every word you said. And he was great at that. He believed every word he said that he and the Freebirds were being treated unfairly and the Von Erichs have the home field advantage and the referees are on their side and all that. And the fans just hated Michael Hayes. So I'm going with Michael Hayes for best on interviews 1983. Ah, let's talk about worst tag team. I have a nomination that people aren't going to like, but first let's hear who uh, John Fell thinks is the worst tag team of 1983. Again, can I say it looking for at 1983 eyes because I didn't understand it? Yes. Were the Briscoes because to me they were just boring. You know, there wasn't much excitement with them. <laughs> it was just if you look at their Starcade 83 match against Youngblood and Steamboat, not a great match. And again, you know, it's just a regular house show that they just built up. But I'm going to go with the Briscoes because I thought they were really boring. Uh, you know what? Ni- I like that. 1983 eyes, because I- I'm going to pull one from 1983 eyes that, you know, a lot of people aren't going to like, but I-, I like that pick. How about you, Steve? I'm going to go with the Strongbow Brothers. I just felt, uh, uh, you know, from based on what you've told me, I mean, initially, I think a lot of the fans enjoyed seeing Jay come back. Uh, Frankie Hill, maybe not so much, but to, to me, they they just seem like one of the worst uh, WWF Tag Team Championship teams in a long, long time. You know, I did not have the Strongbows listed, even though I probably should have, because they were gone or stopped teaming pretty early into 1983. But I mean, if you just wanted to go on, you know, quality of tag team and and you know the 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 big stage they had. Uh, you know, if, if you eliminated the, the, well, they weren't around much, like they're clearly the worst tag team. Uh, my pick from 1983, this is, this was going to surprise some people. And this one is an honorable mention. Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne. Sounds good, right? No, it wasn't good. <laughs> it wasn't. I mean, I don't know why, but I, in 1983, I found them incredibly boring. And then, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I bought, I watched a bunch of 1983 Georgia and I was right. They were not <laughs> a good team. They were just boring in the ring. They, they used way too much of a 1973 style in 1983. The tag team that would have won it. Had they had a bigger stage, and we talked about these guys a little bit earlier, Bobby Jaggers and Buddy Moreno were off the charts bad, especially Buddy Moreno. But again, they weren't together that long, and not that many people watched or remember Southwest Championship Wrestling. So the worst tag team, and these guys got a big push in Florida, Elijah Akeem and Kareem Muhammad, a.k.a. Bad Bad Leroy Brown and Ray Candy, I mean, you know, neither of these guys could move or work. So let's put them together, make them a tag team, have them feud with Blackjack Mulligan and Dusty Rhodes and give them, you know, a a really big push. It was a bad idea and it was even worse in reality. Any thoughts on that tag team from either of you? Now, were they the Zambui Express? The Zambui Express. That's them. Hmm. 
Yeah, the joke going around, which may not have been a joke, in 1983, the University of Houston won the National uh, Basketball Championship in college, and they had a team, they, a player, excuse me, named Akeem Olajuwon. And, I mean, it's suspected that either Dusty Rhodes or Eddie Graham was watching this and came up with that idea just on that. Yeah, I, I know there's a match that's been on YouTube for 100 years. I've, I've watched it a lot. Uh, Billy Graham and Mighty Igor against the Sambui Express from Ooh. Puerto Rico. Oh, my it's, head's it's spinning. Of, it's one of the god-awful worst matches of all time, but it's just kind of funny to see uh, uh, these two uh, icons of 70s wrestling together in Puerto Rico in the late 80s or the mid-80s. Mighty Igor in the mid-80s. I, I have no <laughs> idea that even existed. It That's does exist. crazy. It is. Oh, man. All right. John, Tag Team of the Year for 1983. Who do you got? You know, it, it, this might surprise you because I know everybody leans towards the Road Warriors, and I know that they were together in 82. And it was just that I'm going to say Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronodal because, believe it or not, those two guys are the ones that came up with the – the ideas and basically the the working mechanisms for this feud with Steamboat and Youngblood. You know, they grabbed themselves a book and they wrote everything out and pitched it to the booker and boom, you know, that match that they had with them in March of 83 is just phenomenal. So Justin, it too, really is. Them two, they always say your heel has to be great for your baby face to be great. And for them to put, you know, what they did with uh, those two guys in Steamboat and Youngblood, I really like Cronoodle and Slaughter. That hey, can't argue with that. Steve, who do you have? Well, uh, I respect uh, John's opinion and I respect it so much. I'm going to go with Steamboat and Youngblood because I mean it takes yep. two. I mean, it, you, one team can't do it alone, and uh, they were kind of the opposite side of the team, and uh, they did have phenomenal matches together. So, uh, Steamboat and Youngblood get my vote. All right, tag team of the year. Going by Pro Wrestling Illustrated criteria, you have to go with the Road Warriors. There's no, there's no choice. I mean, you know, looking at it as a a sport that is not predetermined as Pro Wrestling Illustrated tended to, well, always did. It's the Road Warriors by going with you know in-ring performance, interviews, etc. This was a really tough one. Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel are probably the most underrated tag team of all time, and they were still going strong in 1983. Uh, the Road Warriors, again, even using Observer criteria, I mean, these guys were, you could tell they're going to be big superstars, and they were already a draw. But ultimately, I do go with Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. I mean, they were phenomenal in the ring, and I mean, based on the road to Greensboro and the turnaway crowd that they did, you can't argue that they were not a draw. So 1983, we're using Observer criteria, it's Steamboat and Youngblood for me. Worst wrestler, Ooh, I wonder who John McAdams is going to pick, but let's first find out John Fell, worst wrestler. George the Animal Steel. I'll go with that one. And just stick with, just stick with that. I would have said, you know... The Grand Wizard, but I think I beat that joke. <laughs> but yeah, not enough matches. But yeah, um, I'm going to go with uh, George Steele. All right, uh, Steve, who are you going with? I'm going to go with Butcher Rashawn. I, I know he would have some more matches in '84, but Butcher uh, Rashawn, yikes! 
Yeah, yeah, he he was he was just so terribly overweight, and uh, you you would think with that big wedding coming up in '84, he would have been losing <laughs> some weight. But uh, yeah, he gets my vote. Uh, but, you know, Butcher, I didn't even think of him, and he didn't get a big push. But my goodness, he he looked terrible. He was just the uh, <laughs> that that stereotype of you know an old man in a cat suit pretending to fight. Uh, I mean, I actually considered Bob Backlund. Because he had, you know, maybe that's more most overrated, but Backlund was terrible by 1983. Ultimately, I went with George Steele because there were some passable Bob Backlund matches. I don't remember any passable George Steele matches. And really, I mean, that, that gimmick had gone on way too long. And, you know, just yuck. I mean, there, there was no such thing as a good George Steele match in 1983. And with that, we're going to wrap this one up. Guys, we are going to be back next week finishing this one off with uh, all of us giving our picks for the top 10 wrestlers of 1983. Um, 1983 awards is fun to talk about. I hope it's been fun to listen to. John Fell, the king of Baltimore, the, the most charming man in Charm City. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time and being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Good. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Steve, as always, thank you for all of your contributions, and thank you for being on today. It's great to be back. And also, uh, John from Baltimore, thank you for enhancing this great podcast. Thank you. And I want to thank uh, Brian Last and for giving us this podium to talk about wrestling. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, once again, the winner of the 2023 George Martin Award for Best Producer. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.